the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Well, hello, everyone. I'm Dennis Prager. Welcome to my program or my show, depending on which you prefer. California Pizza Hut operators laying off all delivery drivers. But people will still vote for the Democrats in the state of California. The amount of damage done by the Democratic ruling party, which can do anything it wants. It has a supermajority in the California legislature. It is irrelevant. The brainwash has worked. Republicans are bad. No matter how much bad Democrats do, they're good. Two large Pizza Hut operators in California are laying off all their delivery drivers ahead of a new state law. This was right before New Year's. Though the new law comes into effect, came into effect last week. Two large Pizza Hut operators in California are laying off all their delivery drivers ahead of a new state law that raises the minimum wage for fast food workers to $20 an hour. Business Insider reports. This is from station KTLA in Los Angeles. The layoffs impact hundreds of Pizza Hut locations across the state, including Los Angeles, Orange, Riverside, Ventura, and San Bernardino counties, and Sacramento, involve more than 1,200 in-house delivery drivers. Yesterday, I did a, uh, an open forum with Prager Force members. Prager Force is the part of PragerU that involves young people, generally uh, high school through about the age of 25, and they were from all over the world, and I could see them on Zoom. It was was a beautiful uh, hour that I spent with them. So one of the questions was, have you ever changed your mind on an issue? It's a very good question. And I gave uh, a Two examples, I could give more. One was that I I came to be opposed to big government. I thought of myself as a liberal. I was always anti-left, always, because the left didn't hate evil, and that was enough for me. They were not anti-communist. And the other one I said was the minimum wage. I was for a minimum wage, and then I realized how much harm it did. And here is a perfect example. Because the profit margins for Pizza Hut are not great. 
And for tw- at $20 an hour, the only solution would be to raise the price of the pizza. And that would lower the number of people ordering pizza. The second Pizza Hut franchisee, Southern California Pizza Company, is laying off 841 drivers. My heart breaks for these people. I wonder what party these people voted for in the last election. I wonder if they even know why they're being fired. You know, my heart does my heart does break for these people. See what you do when you raise the minimum wage is something else. Not only do you put uh, people out of work, but you put businesses out of business, small businesses especially, and you lower the ability of people, you reduce the ability of people to start working in their lives. They, they don't have the opportunity to start developing work muscles because they're overpriced. Generally, the market pays what you're worth, at least to the person paying you. The current, current minimum wage in California is $16 per hour. The increase to $20 comes after the passage of Assembly Bill 1228, which aims to help fast food workers cope with the rising cost of living and inflation in the Golden State, which has been induced by the Democratic Party because of its fanaticism with regard to energy. Don't drill, don't frack. And so the price of energy has increased enormously, and it affects everything because everything uses energy. They create a problem. This is classic leftism all through the 20th century. They create a problem, and they, of course, don't solve it, so they create another problem as a result of the first problem. This is a perfect example. Why, why didn't we have this inflation rate under Donald Trump? Because he, he allowed for the use of natural gas and fossil fuels and fracking. I'll be headed to Fairbanks next month, one of the coldest cities on earth. And I have to say, if... If they get a little warmer weather in, in Fairbanks, they'd probably be very grateful. Far more people die of f- freezing, of cold weather, than die of hot weather. How many kids learn that at school? So it is. Wall Street Journal reports Biden endangers U.S. troops. American service members are hurt now on somewhat of a regular basis as U.S. bases become enemy drone catchers. 
It was bound to happen sooner or later. American service members would be seriously hurt as Iran-backed militias conduct lethal target practice against U.S. bases in the Middle East. When will President Biden do his duty as commander-in-chief and protect Americans deployed abroad? Iranian proxies have attacked U.S. forces in the Middle East about 100 times in October, November, December. And in the last week of December, an explosive drone made it past U.S. defenses at a base in Iraq. Two Americans were wounded, and a third is in critical condition. The National Security Council's Adrienne Watson issued a statement announcing the reprisal and insisted that, quote, the president places no higher priority than the protection of American personnel serving in harm's way. Boy, was that boilerplate, as lawyers say, about pre-existing copy that's put in a letter. This is demonstrably false, and the bromide is insulting, writes the Wall Street Journal. Mr. Biden's highest priority, whispered by the White House every day, is avoiding escalation with Iran or its proxies. Mr. Biden is afraid, we use that word advisedly, of being involved in a larger conflict which might not be popular in an election year. The U.S. hasn't punished the Houthis for taking the world economy hostage because of their attacks on shipping in the Red Sea, though the U.S. knows the location of Houthi launch sites, radars, weapons, and military leadership. That's astonishing. We know where all all of them are. The Houthis are betting the U.S. and friends lack the political will to punish their piracy. Eh, that's a bet I would make, too. Well, you, <laughs> the news is relentless. So what? what is happening? Our Secretary of Defense is missing. He went missing. Is that amazing? With all this going on, the war... In, in Gaza, and the Secretary of Defense of the United States of America was missing. No one knew, maybe his family did, no one knew where he was. He was having surgery. He didn't tell anybody. And how is it that nobody cared? Does the President meet with the Secretary of Defense? It's painful. It is painful. In whose hands Americans allegedly, or hopefully, honestly, put the country. I don't know if we'll ever know. Back in a moment. So it's Seb Gorka and Mike Gallagher, my two colleagues, two of my colleagues at Salem, who told me about the Ph.D. weight loss program. Uh, and the only reason I took them seriously is because they lost so much weight with it, and it stayed off. So I have discipline in eating. It has never really been an issue, just I haven't been able to lose weight, and I've always wanted to. And sure enough, I've tried it, and now, let's see, it's uh, basically two pounds a month and six months. They they did it faster. But I'm, I'm amazed that I've been able to do that. And it's no pills, no injections, just solid science, no shortcuts, coaching from them. Go to 
phdweightloss.com or just call them 864-644-1900, 864-644-1900 or go to myphdweightloss.com. The academic world is in real trouble. Do Americans know it, but they still send their kids to college? Listen to this. Official anti-Semitism marks the demise of anthropology. This is from the Frontier Center for Public Policy. Betraying the premises and ethics of anthropology, the American Anthropological Association has thrown its weight behind the anti-Israel, anti-Semitic boycott, divestment, sanctions movement. This is the final act in transforming a field of honest academic study into a program of far-left ideology and propaganda. While there were always countercultural waves in anthropology, and the author of the piece writes, who's an anthropologist, in my small department there were two professors who were committed Marxists and two who asserted that they were communists. From the 1960s, there was a tsunami of militant ideologues entering cultural anthropology, feminists whose primary goal was to liberate females from the patriarchy and to generate ever-increasing waves of activist feminist anthropologists. They succeeded. In my 2017 senior seminar, there were 18 females and no males. Wow. As academia becomes more lopsidedly female, it becomes more left-wing. That's a fact. It's not. It's it's causation as much as it is correlation. That's amazing. Eighteen females, no males. My female department colleagues insisted that all future hires would be females. All applicants were vetted for feminist ideological purity. Among cultural anthropologists, females now dominate demographically and politically, just as they do in universities generally. Feminists having introduced and instituted the neo-Marxist distinction between oppressor and victim gender classes, this dualistic model was now available for all grievances fields, such as black, ethnic, queer, and indigenous studies, which all took it up enthusiastically, denouncing the majority of the population as oppressors and identifying themselves as innocent victims. So joining feminist anthropologists were those from other grievance fields and their militant supporters. Grievance fields, yes. That's what you should ask anyone not in STEM, science, technology, engineering, math. You should ask them, and uh, I'm sorry, what, uh, what is your grievance field? What is your grievance field major? Anthropological theory thus became neo-Marxist oppressor victim theory, and ethnography became the identification of oppressors and victims. This gave new life to the old Marxism-Leninism, from which arose the most popular theory in anthropology from the 1990s 
post-colonial theory, which blames all of the ills of the world on Euro-American imperialism and colonialism. This extraordinarily simplistic understanding of the world underlies the vicious denunciation of Israel widespread in academia. Add to this the imaginary identification of Israelis with whiteness and Palestinians as people of color, and today's race hate is mixed into this noxious brew. The AAA, American Anthropological Association boycott, is deemed to be anti-Semitic not only because of its highly biased and unbalanced view of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, but also because it applies judgments to Israel that it applies to no other country. That's that's something uh, Douglas Murray made of this powerful point. Israel is never allowed to win a war. Apparently, the AAA finds nothing to worry about in Iran and its worldwide terrorism, not to mention the suppression of its own people or the Turkish suppression of the Kurds, North Korea's absolute despotism, China's imperialism in Tibet, Inner Mongolia, and Xinjiang, the latter today subject to systematic atrocities, or Russia's imperialistic military invasion of Ukraine. Anthropologists, it appears, just don't like Jews. And there's another news item in that regard. From the American Anthropological Association itself, AAA membership endorses academic boycott resolution. The American Anthropological Association membership has voted to endorse a resolution. This is before October 7th. This took place in July. To boycott Israeli academic institutions. An all-member referendum took place by electronic ballot between June 15th and July 14th. 37% of AAA's eligible members voted. 2016 members, 71% supported the resolution, 835 members, 29% voted to oppose it. I'd like to understand something. Why didn't 63% of the membership of the Anthropological Association vote on this resolution? I assume it's a secret ballot. And I assume that if they were for it, they would have voted for it. I have no idea, none. I'm asking a question. I often provide answers for my questions. I have no idea why 63% of the anthropologists didn't vote on this. Back in a moment. MyPillow is excited to bring you their biggest bedding sale ever, just in time for Christmas. Get the Giza Dream Bed Sheets for as low as $29.98. A set of pillowcases only $9.98. 
Rejuvenate your bed with a MyPillow mattress topper for as low as $99.99. They also have blankets in a variety of sizes, colors, and styles. They even have blankets for your pets. Get duvets, quilts, down comforters, body pillows, bolster pillows, and so much more. All with the biggest discounts ever. They are also extending their money-back guarantee for Christmas until March 1st, 2024, making them the perfect gifts for your friends, your family, and everyone you know. So go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code Prager or call 800-761-6302 and you'll get huge discounts on all MyPillow bedding products including the Giza Dream bed sheets for as low as $29.98 and get all your shopping done now while quantities last. MyPillow.com, promo code Prager. The, the, the amount of... Of, of really sick stuff going on. Yesterday I tried to analyze it for you. Why do people reject the West? Why, why, why do they accept this oppressor-oppressed? And I gave you a number of reasons yesterday. The colonializer and colonized. See... The unspoken factor is this. You have two choices, basically, when you look at the relative success of the Western world compared to virtually all the rest of the world. And by success, I don't only mean economic success, which is not insignificant, it is the material quality of people's lives is, is important. You feel it's important for you. Why isn't it important for the poor? Of course it is. Okay. But the success is also a moral success. It has expanded the notion of human rights beyond any other place on earth, the Judeo-Christian slash Western world. It has developed science and medicine beyond anything imaginable anywhere else. As Neil Ferguson, the, the great historian of Harvard and now at the Hoover Institution, as he wrote, the West is best. That, that's right. There have been rebellions against the West. There is one right now by the left. So when you look at the staggering success of the West uh, or the staggering success of many Americans, you have a choice. Either they have better values and the world should adopt them or they cheated. Yeah, the deck is stacked against everyone else. And they, the whites in America, the West vis-a-vis -vis the non-Western world, they stacked the deck. They didn't earn their success through their values. They got it through oppression and colonization. That's why Israel is so much more successful morally, culturally, scientifically, economically than the Arab states around it. That you have the exact same issue. Why did this happen? 
Clearly, it's because Israel oppressed the Arabs. Not because it has better values. Can't say that. In fact, in order to dismiss the whole values discussion, the left has branded it racist. Are you saying whites are superior in America? That uh, Western, I don't know, whatever they call Israel, colonizers? What a joke. Israel rebelled against colonizers from Rome to, to Britain. There was no other state in the history of the world in Palestine except two Jewish states and now the third. How many kids learned that in college? But Israel is successful. The great, there's a great, 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 great story. It summarizes the anti-Western hatred and anti-Semitic hatred without even saying so, in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. Isaac, uh, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob fame, digs wells and becomes a rich man. And the Philistines, how ironic, they come and they see the wealth that Isaac has accumulated thanks to his wells. Then what do they do? They stuff the wells. They don't ask, how do you dig wells better? They stuff the wells. That's what the Palestinians, the Palestinians don't say, Can, how, do, how do we make a Singapore out of Gaza? They could have. They go, how do we destroy Israel? How do we stuff the Israeli wells? That's, that's it in a nutshell. And that is why I'm writing my Bible commentary, the Rational Bible. Pretty much everything is in the first five books. Everything you need to know about life. Back in a moment. Hi everybody, Dennis Prager here. I'd like to hear from you. If you have experienced firsthand anyone in your family or, or even a wider circle of acquaintances who has a son or daughter who has claimed to be trans. I'm trying to get an idea of how ubiquitous this is. It, 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 I, and I have no idea. But I, I think, I think, well, I don't think, I know that it is far, far more common today than 10 years ago, let alone 50, which argues overwhelmingly for it being a social phenomenon, not an innate phenomenon, that all of a sudden we have this massive increase in young people saying they are the other sex. Uh, It... uh, it can only be explained by chaos in the individual's life and chaos in society's life. I really would like to hear, maybe difficult for you to talk about, but I'd really like to hear from you. If this has touched your family, I know one spectacular human being, he's a very special man, his grandchild is trans. 
and you know, it's obviously he's not obviously he's he's dealt with it. It, it has not crushed his life. I mean, one eight Prager seven seven six eight seven seven two four three triple seven six. Do you know a trans person? It's basically what I'm asking. What happened? Remember, I have a new phrase: lie or die. That's the that is the left's threat to everyone who doesn't lie about what is going on in society. You have to say men give birth. You have to deny the racial component in violent crime. You have to deny how rare it is for cops to kill an unarmed black. You have to lie uh, about voter suppression. I mean, it, it, it. You had to lie about the Hunter Leiden laptop, which fifty-one ex heads of intelligence agencies did. They said it was Russian disinformation. Lie or die. That's the threat that the that the left holds over you. I know people who lied about getting vaccinated. They didn't want to get vaccinated. And so they, they just lied about having gotten vaccinated. And because they would have been, they would not have been dead biologically, they would have been dead financially. They would have lost their jobs. It's amazing the, the ability of people to forget how hated the non-vaccinated were. I mean hated. They were called evil this is that. Why would they call it the pandemic of the unvaccinated? Remember that line. I come across so many articles of people dropping dead in their forties, thirties, out of nowhere. Athletes, people in great physical condition, just dropping dead. I I knew a man who was at the peak of his health in his sixties. He had no conditions and just, he had a double heart, he had a, I don't remember, my wife would remember, but he had a heart attack and then on the way to the hospital, he had another heart attack, which they had almost never seen. I spoke to his brother, whom I never met, but I spoke to him and we're both convinced it was because he was vaccinated. This, of course, is called misinformation. It doesn't matter how much information we have on the uh, myocarditis deaths, for example. It doesn't matter. It's called misinformation. Misinformation is anything that the New York Times doesn't want to report. That's, That's what misinformation is. It's not actually misinformation. Dallas, Texas, and Don, hello. Um. Hey, Dennis. There we go. Uh, so I told your call screener, um, my, uh, she's really my half-sister um, from my dad. Mm-hmm. And all three of her daughters eventually, and this was actually several years ago, so her oldest one would be probably in her 30s now. And the last I heard from her, she did some transitioning stuff, and she just now is like one of the most depressed and suicidal people um, that you'd want to meet. 
And I would also like to bring up to like uh, several, several months ago, I got into a chat. I don't want to call it an argument with a colleague who has, he lives in England and his son uh, came out as a woman and, and we got into a big of an argument over the pronoun thing. And it led to that, and he ended up calling me transphobic and a few other things. And, and I told him about my niece. I said, you know, look, dude, um, I, I have physical experience with family members who have gone through this, and now that they're older, they are suicidal, they're depressed. You know, it's, it's just a horrible thing. So May I ask you, I wait, so yeah. you're telling me, wait, all three daughters of the same mother? Yes. Yes, yes. In different variations, though. I mean, I don't really follow them anymore, but this was several years ago, and they all kind of took off in some very strange uh, directions. So and how do you know how do you know how depressed the older one is? Uh, because my sister told me probably about six months ago when I was talking to her about it. This, is this your sis, is this your sister's children? Yes. Did they grow up with a father? Uh, yes, they did. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's a whole nother, that'd take hours to get into all that. But anyway, well, don't take hours. In one minute, okay. what's the issue with the father? Uh, well, he's now dead, um, but he was very, uh, in a lib- he was liberal in a lot of ways. And uh, I think he was more uh, pacifistic about stuff than anything. Plus, he was also an alcoholic. And and all three daughters say they're male. Uh, well, the one who suffers from the serious depression, from what I understand, she's the one that that took a new name and took on malehood. The other two daughters are—it's just really hard to describe. I think they kind of got into the whole Japanese pansexual kind of culture. Wow. And you have no contact with them? Uh, I have not in a long time. Wh- I why? reaching out, but, you know, they live their lives and I live my life. And we're in different places. What does your sister think? Um, well, I haven't talked to her in quite a while. And I don't know what kind of contact she has with her daughters. But uh, she's also struggled with drug and alcoholism for years. And um, she's actually on her right foot now. So she's doing well in 12-step programs and stuff. Um, but I don't know. I mean, now that you bring this up, see, now it's inside of me, and I'm going to want to think about calling her at least and talking to her about, you know, how her life well, is. So, well, something stuff. good came out of the call. <laughs> wow. It is very hard for me to imagine that more than half of people who transition are happy. It's hard for me to imagine that half are. See, it, it's a question, and I don't have—I have absolutely no answer to. Is there a voice in them that says you're living a lie? You're really not what you portray yourself as. How is it possible not to think that in some ways? I, I am a boy, and now I am a girl. Do I really think I'm a girl? 
One of the reasons that they want to shut down all therapy that enables you to, to identify with the sex you are is that there, there should be no voices in the life of a trans that say it's much better to identify with your sex than to create a gender identity. Back in a moment. Wow, do you know that every line is filled? I've asked if you have a trans in your life. Well, hmm. All right, let's see uh, what else we have here. Laura in Mission Viejo, California. Hello. Oh, hi, Hi. Yeah, I have a son. Could you talk, talk, talk directly into the phone if you would? It's a little hard to hear you. Yeah, I'm trying to switch over. I'm so sorry. I um, well, I'm doing that. I have a son. Yeah, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna put you on hold because uh, I I don't want you to hang up. But I I, I can't. Hear, you're not you're not coming through clear. So I really want to hear what you have to say. Colleen in Tucson, Arizona. Hello. Hi. Hi. My, um, I just found out that my husband's grandson has decided to transition. How old is he? Uh, he's in his late 20s. And I, I haven't actually seen him in almost six years since their grandfather died. So, I... Wait, so, wait, 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 wait. It, it, their grandfather was your husband? Yes. Okay, so, so you're a widow? Yes. Okay. Uh, and I'm sorry about that, by the way. Uh, mm-hmm. So you have not been in touch with this grandchild who is now in his late 20s. How do you know that he's trans? I saw it on Instagram. Now, when you knew him... Were there any signs of a troubled soul? Uh, no. He, I, well, he was into furries, if you know anything about that. Yeah, I do, yeah. Yeah, and I, at the time, did not know everything about it. Well, why don't you give my audience a 30-second explanation? I, it's a sexual fetish thing, from my understanding. Oh, I didn't know that. I guess I don't know much yeah. about it. I, I uh, so, do you know anything else about it? About furries? Yeah, N- not much. No. I thought. I guess I got it all wrong. I thought they, I, they sort of identified with furried animals. I guess I don't know why I thought that. Yeah. And they wear I, costumes of it. Okay. Anyway, go on. So, well, that yes, whatever the definition that exemplifies a troubled soul. I mean yeah. so the answer is yes. Did did he grow up with uh, two parents? Uh mostly. Yeah. They were married for a long time. Mhm. Divorced. He has a brother and a sister. Um but uh I have I have MS and so I can't get around as much so it's 
just hard for people sometimes to stay in contact with me. And I actually haven't seen any of the family, his family, family since uh, he died. Would so. you? Would you have liked to? I would have. That's sad. I, I'm. I, the, you you think it's largely because you have MS? I'm not sure. Yeah, I, it doesn't honestly, make sense. If if, if you had yeah. a bond, I don't know why MS would have severed it. Only because I can't travel. I know, I, but you can talk on the phone. I mean, it's... Yeah. I mean... I don't know. Yeah. Well, anyway, look, I thank you for calling. Let's try Mission Viejo again and see if Laura has the phone issue resolved. Hello. Hi. Thank you, Dennis. Can you you did it. Yes. Well done. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I wanted to tell you, I have a son who's about 21 and is trans, and he's basically cut me out of his life since he was about 10 years old. And his father is a very kind person, but very passive and so kind of let it happen. And when I saw my son before all this was happening, we would have a good time, and then he would realize it and withdraw from me even more. I haven't seen him or spoken to him in years. He told me I'm trans, I'm gay, I'm a socialist, I'm not a Christian, all things you hate. I don't want to be tolerated. And that's the last thing he said to me by text. Well, there's so he cut you out at 10? That's when it started. Him, him cutting me out, being unhappy. He threatened to kill himself, so you have to take it seriously. So I let him live with his dad, which I greatly regret. But we're, you know, when I got divorced, I didn't do very well on my own. And, you know, he didn't have the, you know, it was rough. But I had no idea this was going on until he went to college, which is apparently when his father found out. And no one told me. I actually figured it out for myself. And then I confronted my children about it, and they told me the truth. How many other children do you have? I have two other children, to my knowledge, are uh, normal, and they still talk to me and visit me, uh, their college and high school. Do they have contact with the trans child? Or, or... Yeah, pretty much everybody does. Yeah, it's a boy preferring to live as a woman. Um, everyone has contact with him, which I'm very happy about. He's not alone in the world, but, you know, he's not in touch with me. Uh, what I don't understand is what started at 10. This is what, uh, this is uh, not clear to me. I think uh, my children went through puberty early, and that's one of the things that happened with him. And he was also angry about the divorce, which had been going on for like, we had a slow divorce for a couple of years. And I don't really know. He's never spoken to me about it. He will never sit down and talk to me. Well, what do your other children say? They must speak to him. Uh, they they come from, it's a mixed racial family, and it's from a culture where you don't talk about a lot of things openly. It's always harmonious. And so if they know anything, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to. Uh, so, like I said, I, I honestly So it's interesting. He said to you. He said to you he's gay. Yes, I don't know what that means. Yes, so hold on. Yes, I mean, you don't hold on. I mean, thank you for calling. I will react to that statement when we come back. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. 
we have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So this woman, I think that's right, right? About the son who is trans and he was gay. Oh, yeah, who announced I'm gay and I'm trans. So you will find this of great interest, my dear listeners. Wall Street Journal, December 14th, less than a month ago. Most transgender kids turn out to be gay. And it's written by a gay. And at least it's true for the boys. This is a practicing endocrinologist in Montreal, a senior fellow at the group No Harm. So listen to this. These, uh, these patients, research shows that some 80% of children with gender dysphoria eventually come to terms with their sex without surgical or pharmaceutical intervention. So for those people pushing, oh, you must accept and affirm their transition at their early age, please know that you can help them because 80% of the time, if this is accurate, They actually don't transition. They give that up. Multiple studies have found that most kids who are confused or distressed about their sex end up realizing, ready? They're gay. I I believe I understand this. Nearly two-thirds are boys. So most are gay, most trans are gay, and nearly two-thirds of them are boys. Now, why is that, why does that make sense? A, a gay boy or a man wants a man. So two, uh, two issues are at work here. One is, I can seduce men by being a woman. The problem with that is, you're seducing heterosexual men. And they they are not grateful when you've seduced them, you've successfully seduced them, you're in a hotel room or in your apartment or home, and they discover that you have what they have, that is a very distressing thing for most heterosexual men. 
The other reason, aside from seducing men, is that there is a, there is a percentage of gays, I think it's, it's less than half. I'm sure it's less than half. Who are extremely effeminate to the point of being a female or thinking they're a female. He writes, gay kids often don't conform to traditional sex roles, but gender ideology holds that feminine boys and masculine girls may be born in the wrong body. In this light, gender-affirming care looks a lot like conversion therapy. In the past, it took the form of electroshock therapy, chemical castration, and even lobotomy. Now it takes the form of rendering teenagers sterile and sexually dysfunctional for life. Clinicians from the main UK transgender service referred to prescribing puberty blockers as transing the gay away, a play on the description of old-fashioned conversion therapy as praying the gay away. A clinician who resigned from the UK service accused it of institutional homophobia. Clinicians at the service had a dark joke that, quote, there would be no gay people left at the rate GIDS, gender identity service, was going. Yeah, well, it's a very interesting thing that the last call opened up when the boy said, I'm gay and I'm trans. It's a way to truly get rid of masculine identity. See, if you are an effeminate gay, most are not, but if you are an effeminate gay, then trans is the perfect mode of expression. We return. The Dennis Prager Show. If you're lucky, Sean may pick up. You'd have to be very lucky. And and I'll tell you something. It would prove to me that you are moonlighting. And I I would have an issue with that. I I thought you're completely devoted to Salem Radio. And uh Okay, let's see. Who has had a trans person in their life? And good, John, Joel in Livermore, California, who differs with me, and I'm glad you called. Thank you. Yeah, hey, Dennis. Thanks for taking my call. Right. The thing I, I wanted to say was uh, I feel like you're really painting a picture like this is a, a nurture issue rather than nature. And yeah, but not nurture by parents, nurture by society. See, that's where I disagree. Okay. I do think that that is correct with, well, I'll tell you, my, my child growing up had friends that knew that my child was transgender or gay at the time. And the friends would come out and say, I'm gay. Well, they really weren't great gay. So, yeah, that would be like a peer pressure societal change that's really short-lived. But there are people that are transgender because they are born feeling that they're in another body. <clears throat> and uh, 
Do you think your son is one of them? 100%. Mm-hmm. He's known it since he was a small, say, I want to say so, nearly five years old. Right. So let me ask you something. How do you know if you're a man or, or, or you're a boy, we'll, we'll talk about boys and girls. If you're a boy, how do you know what it means to be a girl or vice versa? I, I understand that, that one could be uncomfortable with what one is and the fact that he's gay supports supports my view and my opinion, but, but we'll put that aside just for the moment. I do want to address it. But you don't have a clue as a man what it means to be a woman. It is not possible for you to know, even if you identify. There, If, if, if a man or a boy is, is gay, he wants boys. One of the ways to get boys is is to feminize. Most gay couples, and I know quite a few, one is more feminine, and it doesn't mean is not a wonderful man and fully 100% male, but one is more feminine than the other. This is played out in, in real life. Uh, so I, I, the th- where you and I might differ, and, and it's fine if we do, and and... I shouldn't, I don't know, should I say my heart goes out to you? Do you, are, how should I react on a human level to you? Um, I mean, no apology, you don't need to apologize. There's there's nothing wrong. I, I don't feel like there's anything wrong with my kid. I love my child to death. I'm here to support my child. So the only thing that worried me at the beginning was, how is society gonna treat this person? Well, if I met your, if I met, I assume you refer to this uh, this child as as your daughter, correct? No, it's my son. She transitioned to him. Oh, oh, I don't know why I assumed uh, otherwise. Okay, uh, all right. So, excellent. If I met your, if I, so if I met him. You, you refer to him as him, correct? Correct. Yeah. If I met him, would I have any doubt that I had met a man? So he's on testosterone right now, so you would probably think it's a man. How old is he? 15. Oh, I see. When did... And it was at 10 when she was she that she came out and said this to you? So roughly fifth fifth grade was when uh, he came out, well, when at the time she came out. And, and of course, you know, th- this was a humongous decision. So me and at the time, uh, uh, the mom, we had long discussions about it with the ramifications of what, you know, it's going to do. For Were you ever tempted to say, darling, I hear your discomfort, but please understand you, you are a girl and, and it, All the t- yeah, go on. It, it, at the beginning, 100%. 
you want to discourage it as much as possible because you know what it's going to do. You know how hard life is. You know what people in school are like. So it is, it is, I mean, the biggest fear as a parent is your child's safety. Your child's yeah, no, that, that's clear. I, I, of course, I understand that. I'm a parent. So your now son would like to date which sex? Women. Right. So, right. So, 20 years ago, this, I think this would not have happened because you're right, we differ, I think, in society because we ha- we virtually had none of this in American history or even Western history. It, it was common among, indi- more common among indigenous people for people to identify as the opposite sex, but that's a separate issue. So your your daughter, originally daughter, would have theor- probably become a lesbian. And so what we have today is a lesbian who is masculinized. That's how I read it. It is not an insult. It is not a put down. Th- that is how I understand it given the number of gays disproportionately in the trans movement. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, absolutely. And we agree that. Yeah, well, you're a good man. I, I, I only wish you happiness. Thank you. Hi, everybody. The Serious Hour here. If you have a trans person in your life, I could do this for days, obviously. Uh, Cleveland and Mary, hello. Hi, Dennis. Thanks for taking my call. Mm -hmm. I have a 16-year-old daughter who has been thinking she's a boy for about four years now. Mm -hmm. We discovered this when she was in sixth grade. Uh, through journals and things like that. And I really believe that the majority of girls who think that they are boys are doing it to fit in in their peer group or are uncomfortable in their body as they're maturing. Let me ask you about number one. What, what peer group are we talking about? Well, the the peer group among girls to fit in with other girls. Wait, so she, wait, so she will fit in with other girls if she transitions to being a boy. Yes, there's the um, it's a way of kind of fitting in, and the girls who think they're boys, it's a way to be popular. Yeah, ah, that's what it is. I think it's popularity rather than fitting in. Although obviously they're related, that's fair. Yeah. Um, just like being in sports, it's just a way to... So has has anyone in her life, and this is not at all accusatorial, I promise you, uh, it's a curiosity question, has anyone said to her, you are a girl, that is how nature made you, or sometimes people will say God, uh, but usually it's not a religious child who's doing this. 
I mean, has was there any pushback in her life? Oh, yes. I mean, we've, we've had her to several different counselors. In fact, we're on our third counselor right, right but now. don't the counselors, aren't the counselors told to affirm their transition? Well, the ones that were secular were, but we were very fortunate to find a Christian-based counselor. It took us several um, months, um, but we are finally having some success. She's 16 now, and we've just uncovered recently that it was a way of fitting in. You know, she was uncomfortable in yes, her body, but right. it, was the girl, it was a way for the girls to gain acceptance and feel good about themselves. Who was she attracted to, boys or girls? Oh, she's she's attracted to boys now. Okay, but... he's not fascinating. Yeah, but boys won't really want her. Boys want girls, or at least heterosexual boys do. Oh my God. I have a remarkable man on the video and audio right now. His day job, so to speak, has been associate professor of medicine at Brown University. I, uh, he's an epidemiologist, of all things. I admit, not a group that I have instant respect for, <laughs> but <laughs> I do for him. <laughs> Uh, but he is uh, known to people around the world for, he's one of the greatest living scholars of Islam and specifically of Islam and the Jews. I, I don't know how he has been able to do the work he has done. If he were a full-time academic, it would be an achievement, but he's a full-time epidemiologist. And now a uh, a book of surpassing scholarship and understanding the legacy of Islamic anti-Semitism by Andrew Boston, B-O-S-T-O-M, Boston with an M, M.D. There's a foreword by Ibn Warak. Ibn Warak, I've read much of his work, is a Muslim or was a Muslim and now writes under a pseudonym because he doesn't want to get killed. Andrew Bostom, it's a true honor. You're an exceptional uh, man, scholar, gutsy guy. Before we go on to your work, uh, how did you react to my comment that when I hear someone's an epidemiologist, it does not foster instant respect? I, I 100% agree with you. Uh, we were talking briefly <laughs> off air, Dennis, and, and um, I, I retired a little early. Uh, because of what I saw happening in the field of epidemiology. And actually, I'm, I'm trained as a clinician originally, as an internist. Um, and so maybe that gives you a slightly different uh, you know, perspective than someone who's, uh, who's a, a PhD epidemiologist. Um, and um, what, what I saw taking place in, the, in response to the pandemic, to COVID, um, was, was uh, very disturbing to me. I, I tried to speak out about it. I tried to do what I could, mostly behind the scenes, um, involved with a lot of litigation against against mass mandates against vaccine mandates um but um, the vilification and the, and the mindless attacks um i i i i, re- I retired a little bit early uh, so so i'm no longer <laughs> actively I, I i do i do some some independent research still 
Um, but I'm, I'm done with the Academy. Well, one more question about that, and then obviously getting into the topic. And that is, uh, I told you what I associate epidemiologists with. I associate Brown with being woke before the term was invented. Is that yes. accurate? It's very accurate. It's very accurate. Um, there, there. You know. So again, so I, I, I retired uh, by by the summer of 2021. Um, my wife is still a full time academic there uh, in the medical school. Um, very hardworking clinician and a, and a um, and, and a teacher. Um, you know, people people uh, function there by keeping their nose to the grindstone and not not um, not surrendering to to wokeness. Uh, not surrendering to. I mean, they're actually reinstituting reinstituting mask mandates now. You're my kidding. Wife has, You're kidding. No, my, yeah. So, so my wife has said no. She said no. She's a full professor. She will not. She will of, not of wear medicine. Mask. Of, of medicine. Yes. 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 She will not wear. She will not wear a mask in her individual uh, interactions with patients. And she asks the patient, however. Do you have any objection to me not wearing a mask? She said 100% of them say they have no objection. Moreover, once she says that, they say, Dr. Robinson, Boston, can I please take off my mask? And she says, of course, absolutely. And that's the way she deals with it. One of my doctors, needless to say, I won't even say at, at what academic institution, but it is an academic institution hospital. And uh, he... When I show up for my twice-a-year checkup, the joy that I bring him, because he knows the instant he walks into the room, he can take his mask off. <laughs> so he spends an inordinate amount of time with me. <laughs> no, but seriously, Dennis, she she's making that a policy now. You know, she and and she'll if if, if some if, if, you know in terms of her own residents, and she'll she'll tell them read the Cochrane review. This is yeah. Gold well, standard. they yeah, I reported that avidly on my show. That is the yes. gold standard. That is the meta uh, study. It's a study exactly. of all the studies, and it's iterative. It's iterative, Dennis. In other words, um, Tom Jefferson, who's been doing masking uh, analyses, you know, has been doing them over the past twenty years. Every version, so covering the flu era and then moving into COVID, every version has come to the same conclusion. It doesn't work. It didn't work for flu. It doesn't work for COVID. It doesn't work, period. Well, the the guideline for me was Sweden. Uh, yes. I, I, I yes. had some place to say to my listeners, don't trust me, trust another country. Exactly, exactly. I wish I wish they could handle their their Islamization as well as they handled COVID. (laughs) You know what? I didn't know how you would do it. How do we get a segue from Sweden and masks to your book, (laughs) but it or your whole your whole life? So, all right. So here's the book, folks. It's up at DennisPrager.com, and it's it's an incredible work: the legacy of Islamic anti-Semitism. From sacred texts to solemn history. So, this is huge, this topic, and people listening will be lucky to have heard you. Let's begin at the beginning. What was Muhammad's attitude towards Jews? 
So Muhammad's initial attitude was that they would recognize him as their prophet and, and, that, and that they would, they would uh, take kindly to him, follow him, etc. Um, he, he found, and again, Genesis, we have to, we have to take this on faith. It's, it's all the Muslim narrative. We don't really have independent historical confirmation for any of this. But, but what, what Muslims learn, what Muslims teach is that Muhammad was very disappointed in the Jews' reaction to him, and they resorted to all kinds of uh, chicanery and then, and then serious stuff, attempting to assassinate him, etc., uh, and sabotage him. And he felt compelled to conquer and subdue them and bring them, and bring them under nascent Islamic law. So it's a very, very contentious uh, relationship. Um, and then we see... A lot of melding together of, of uh, in terms of the anti-Semitism, of, of themes that are that are interwoven with with the Quran itself, with the traditions of Muhammad, um, and so in in one iconic you know scene, if you can envision it that way, uh, Muhammad is besieging the the Jewish tribe Banu Kareza, uh, and he's allegedly saying outside you know their fortress. Um, uh, he's, he's deriding them as, as brothers of apes and pigs. And this is a Quranic epithet. It's, it's in the fifth surah chapter uh, of, of, of the Quran, the 60th verse. Um, and, you know, ultimately, of course, uh, they, the, the siege is successful. They surrender. And because they're accused of treachery, uh, Muhammad himself uh, beheads somewhere between 600 and 900 of the post-pubescent males, um, and and then and then the rest are are enslaved, um, and 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 this becomes the the the, the prototype for um, for how uh, any any resistance to to his authority is dealt with in terms in terms of the Jews. He, eventually, it winds up where there's there's a farming oasis. Uh, where there's no there's no hostility towards Muhammad. They're, they're, these are these are Jewish farmers, and and they are attacked in what is believed to be again according to the Muslim narrative one of the first um, truly aggressive jihad campaigns, and and it's it's violent. They're subdued, and they become the first dimi uh, Dennis. The, the, those those that those that are willing uh, to surrender. Uh, are are allowed to function as vassals uh, uh, un, under Islamic law and, and contribute uh, a, a, a poll tax or or some sort of remuneration uh, from from their from their farming, um, but but they but they give up all their o- autonomy. They're 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 de-weaponized, um, and again, uh, this is this this becomes incorporated in, into Islamic law. So so the best that Jews can hope for under Islamic law is, is, a, is a form of, of vassalage. Of yeah. vassalage. Yeah. Dimmi, folks, is D-H-I-M-M-I. Christians are also Dimmi. Those are the only groups yes. allowed to even be Dimmi. The others were generally offered the sword or conversion. The, the book is The Legacy of Islamic Antisemitism. It is up at DennisPrager.com. We continue. My guest is one of the most dis- distinguished historians, though amazingly he's an MD and professor of endocrinology, and now retired from Brown University. 
wife is still teaching there in the medical school. The legacy of Islamic anti-Semitism. So we're talking about the beginning with Muhammad. Tell me if this is accurate, that Muhammad fasted on Yom Kippur until the Jews rejected him? Are you familiar with that? I'm honestly not familiar with that. Yeah, it's it's uh, it, it's something. Uh, I, I, that's why I wanted to bounce it off you. I've read it in so many yeah. places, but I, I I wanted to ask someone who's really uh, gone through all of this. All right, it's it's not here or there, but he did make overtures to the Jewish community. They rejected him. He beheaded uh, eight hundred or whatever it was, and uh, that was the beginning. When when the terrorist groups quote. There was a Jew behind the tree. What is that from? So this is this is this is also Muhammad. Muhammad Muhammad in a tradition in a hadith uh, talks about um, the, the, that that the Jews will have to be annihilated to usher in the messianic age, and and this is what you find um, not only in the Hamas covenant, uh, but it's it's a tradition that's repeated. Uh, through and this is the problem, Dennis. It's a tradition that's repeated by major Islamic teaching institutions like Al Azhar University. Um, it's commonplace uh, throughout the Middle East. It's commonplace historically. Uh, we can we can see it referred to in in, in classical Quranic commentaries. But it's 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 basically um, central to to Muslim uh, eschatology end of end of times theology. Uh, both both Sunni and and, and what, what is central to end of times eschatology? That that the Jew, the Jews have to be annihilated. Really, to usher in, and that's yes. in the Hadith. Yes, that's it's, the, it's all right. In, so that's in again that's post Quran teachings. I just want to be it, it, it clear. exactly exactly. Um, and and as a matter of fact, Dennis, there was a really this was a remarkable poll because I'd like to talk if we could a little bit about polling data that we have contemporary polling data. But but in 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 2011, Stanley Greenberg, who you may remember was a was a very respected Democratic pollster. I think he still is. Uh, he he did something remarkable. He went to uh, to uh, Judea Samaria, to the West Bank and Gaza, uh, and polled over a thousand Palestinians in in Arabic, and he pulled out two two uh, elements of the Hamas covenant. One that basically it's Article Seven, I believe that that quotes that hadith that you just mentioned um, and, and wanted to see how many of the Palestinians uh, uh, abided it. And, and 73% uh, felt that that was, that was the, way, the way things should be. That the Jews um, should then, be annihilated. Yes, yes. But, and so this is, in, this is, a, this is a genocidal uh, theme. When, when it came to another article in the Mosque Covenant, which he quoted, uh, it's it's in Article 15. It that is a section about jihad to, to be waged by the entire Muslim community, the, the global ummah, as they refer to it, uh, to destroy Israel as a political entity, not necessarily to destroy to, to 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 wipe out individual Jews, although it's hard to separate the two to a certain extent. Um, and that that was again that that was accepted, abided by 80 percent of Palestinians. But, but what he did that was remarkable was that he specifically used the language from these articles in, in the survey. Other questions were asked as well. But that was the first time I ever saw any pollster even attempt such a thing. And, and you know, Dennis, it's actually, when you look more broadly at attitudes, 
Some of the best polling data we come uh, comes from an organization that I think neither of us, it's fair to say, have a lot of respect for, and that's the Anti-Defamation League. <laughs> However, for over 20 years, they did they have developed a very simple and elegant survey instrument, which which it's gone through two iterations. But basically, they query 11, they they list 11 anti-Semitic stereotypes. And the individual respondent just has to sort of check off and say which ones they agree with. If they agree with with the majority, so six out of 11, they're defined, and I'm using epidemiologic terms, but they're defined as an index case of of extreme anti-Semitism. Then ADL applies this across countries, populations, and simply tallies up what is what? How common is this? When when they when they went to uh, not surprisingly when they went to the Middle East and North Africa, and they did this as part of a hundred country survey, um, they found that the sixteen most anti-Semitic countries in the world were all in this region, and the commonality, the prevalence of this degree of anti-Semitism. Again, it's extreme anti-Semitism. Was was any anywhere from seventy-four to ninety-three percent, and of course, also unsurprisingly, the the prize winner in terms of the dubious prize winner, in, in, where the ninety-three percent was the Muslims of Gaza and and the West Bank. Although close behind them at ninety-two percent were were the Iraqis, um, and 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 what's happened unfortunately is that as the Muslim populations have migrated into Western Europe and the United States, not to this degree of virulence. But but increasingly approaching it, you see the same sort of disparity. Uh, When you look at the global data, again, it's the 16 most anti-Semitic countries in the world. When you when you when you look at Western Europe and you start to apply this same survey there, you're now seeing the the latest iteration. Uh, They took a hiatus for covid. But in 2000, uh, at the end of, of, of 2022, um, they, they at least surveyed the Muslims of, of, uh, of France uh, and Belgium. And, and, in, and in France, this degree of anti-Semitism amongst the Muslims was 62%. It was only, not, not, I should say only, it was 15% amongst the Christians. Uh, similar results of, in the low to mid-50s. Yeah, from, you could Belgium. say only. If it's 15%. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> well, no. Uh, no, I, 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 I'm, I'm agreeing only is valid. 15% yeah. means nothing to me. Uh, about 30 years ago, I established the Elvis Presley principle. When I read that 12% of Americans thought Elvis Presley was alive, I said, <laughs> you, that means never take 12% seriously. You can get twelve percent to say anything. So if it's it's, dispropor- it's, it's disproportionate, though, is is the point? And yes, sort of your point is extremely well taken. Of the sixteen most anti-Semitic countries, were they all Muslim? Oh yeah, every country was in was in the the the, the uh, North Africa okay. and the Middle East. We'll be back every in a moment. The book is the Legacy of Islamic Anti-Semitism. Andrew Boston. If you visit relieffactor.com, you will read about what a magnificent change, improvement it has made in so many people's lives. And I and just about everybody I know are among them because it's very common to develop muscle or joint pain at some point in life. I'm right now at Knockwood or whatever you want to say, uh, I am pain free which is a pretty, pretty wonderful thing to be. Uh, 
but when I have had uh, the muscle and or, or joint issues, I have taken Relief Factor. Try it for three weeks for nineteen ninety five. If it doesn't work, cancel your order. That's what they say because they say you'll know in three weeks if it works. I find that a very honest approach on their part. ReliefFactor.com, dot com nineteen ninety five for three weeks. Eight hundred five hundred eighty three eighty four. Andrew Boston, maybe the the lead. I think I I think he's the leading expert today on uh, Islam and the Jews, and his. Uh, the amazing thing is that's not his job. He's not an academic. He he's a professor of medicine. So it's even all the more remarkable the legacy of Islamic anti-Semitism, and it, it's it's quite quite a book. So we're talking about the the general overview. From we jumped from Muhammad to our time, which is just fine. So again, the ADL, which I I believe and you believe as uh, absolutely downplayed Islamic anti-Semitism. Uh, yes. Uh, nevertheless, it has acknowledged that in its survey of countries, the 16 most anti-Semitic countries were all Muslim, and they were in the Middle East. Am I repeating you correctly? Yes, yes. It's, it's, it's remarkable what they do between the raw data and the press releases. There's, there's this yawning gap, Dennis, and it's, and it's very misleading. And I think it's why people are shocked when I tell them that that's what the surveys have actually shown. And, and they've shown this re- repeatedly. You know, a, a colleague of ours, um, uh, Mort Klein, uh, uh, I briefed him on these data, and he and he and he was at a at a, at a congressional hearing on anti-Semitism in 2019, and he actually made slides and posters of these data, and so he's going through it just the way I went through it, uh, you know, with with you, and you know, the, the, the way the way these hearings run, there's there's a there's a lot of uh, gaps between the different witnesses, and it just so happened that ADL was there, and so about a half hour after Mort presented these data. Again, where, where the 16 most anti-Semitic countries in the world are, are all in, in the Muslim Middle East and North Africa. Um, her, her, her response, I, I recorded it, was, was unbelievable. Um, in other words, these societies are virtually 100% Muslim with the, possible, with the exception of Lebanon, which is about 60% Muslim now. It's Muslim majority. So, so her response to, 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 to this disproportionate anti-Semitism. From their is, own data. Yes, 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 yes. Eileen Hershenov, senior VP for policy, was, quote, one of the witnesses, you know, Mort Klein, talked about global attitudes that we look at. And the ADL does track that. Her, her vulnerable, marginalized communities have bigotry within them. And I, I, my jaw dropped when she said that. So in other words, in other words, the 99% Muslims are a marginalized community in Yemen, you know, in in Saudi Arabia. I, I mean, it was, but that was the explanation. Do we, do we have a recording of her saying that? Yes, yes, I can send it to you. It's, it's, it's uh, If you send it to me, I will play it on my show. It's when did the, when did this happen? This was 2019, the spring of 2019. So well, more, look, I, I just want, I, I have gone on record saying that the Anti-Defamation League has done less to combat anti-Semitism than to foster it. I, I, it's a radical statement. I say it with sadness. It is a useless organization, in my opinion, except for a handful of raw data things like this one. And uh, it, it, 
it, it's it's very sad. Uh, they're they're the wokest of the woke, and and now and they've Dennis, been a, they've been hit on the head. Offense. I'm it's sorry. A serial offense when it comes to this because you will you will, the, the last survey that they published was it was from Europe in in uh, it, data collected through 2022 but but put out in May. And again, this striking result from France and Belgium, they they literally didn't mention it. That it's almost as if it's gotten more brazen. The denial, the negation is more brazen. They literally didn't mention that 62% of the Muslims of France now exhibit extreme anti-Semitism uh, or, or 55% of the Muslims in Belgium. They literally didn't, didn't mention it. It's in the data, but they didn't mention it at all in their press release. And they're screaming about, about white supremacism. Right, and, trans- and transphobia. Well... A million phobias. <laughs> yes, a million but, phobias. But but it's it and, and and so I think I think so when you when you when you want to do something to combat this problem and and I and I think unfortunately a lot of it is it's 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 institutionalized. The the institutions of Islam are still teaching these very very negative stereotypes of, of Jews, like Al Azhar University. But when you have an organization that won't even be honest with what the data are showing. It, it, it's completely disoriented. Their own, the da- their own data. Their own data. Yes. Back in a yes. moment, the legacy of Islamic anti-Semitism. Andrew Bostom, B-O-S-T-O-M. His accomplishments in this arena are unique. We'll be back in a moment. The Dennis Prager Show. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free every single day, become a member of Pragertopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at Pragertopia.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. And I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.